Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our August 25th. 2011 edition of the show. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. The word debt has been frequently in the news recently, what with all the drama going on in Washington. And because uh, so many of us are unemployed or underemployed, many of us are probably carrying around a fair amount of debt. But really, what is debt? This may seem like a silly question that any sixth grader could easily answer, but What if it's not so simple? What if our understanding of debt and money is based on unexamined assumptions, dogma, and linguistic peculiarities that create a contrived reality that isn't serving most of us too well? This and much more is examined in a new book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Author David Graeber is our special guest today. He teaches anthropology at Goldsmiths University of London and has written several other books, including Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value, Possibilities, Essays on Hierarchy, Rebellion, and Desire. He has written uh, for Harper's, The Nation, Mute, and The New Left Review. David Graeber, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's great to have you. I, this is one of those books that um, really um, <laughs> had a huge effect on me, and it's one of those right. things that I'm wanting to tell everybody I know about and really appreciate you uh, putting this out there. Uh, from uh, reading your book, I've come to realize that what most of us think we know about the history of money, debt, and credit is woefully inadequate or just plain wrong. Uh, how did this become a, a burning issue for you? Well, I was involved in the, the global justice movement for many years, and a lot of the issues that we were working on at the time had to do with debt. I mean, first of all, the third world debt crisis, which is really what set it off, um, the role of the IMF and using debt as a political tool to have people remake their economies in this you know, sort of ferocious, supercharged um, neoliberal model. And then, you know, I suddenly, more I thought about it, more I realized how central debt was to just about all political issues. You know, modern economies run on deficit financing, consumer finance, international relations are based on debt. Yet, no one had ever written a history of the phenomena, in, which is odd, because if you think about it, there's almost nothing that nobody's ever written a history of. <laughs> but debt there isn't. So the more I, more I started studying it, the more I realized that it's sort of central to almost all political, even religious issues for the last 5,000 years. It, and, yeah, so you, there just is uh, an astonishing amount of information, and there are uh, so many uh, things that I had no clue this is <laughs> the way things were. And But once I got that from your, uh, reading what you had in this book, I was... It, Things you know, started clicking and, and lights started uh, going off, mm-hmm. and uh, you're like, no, this all kind of 
makes sense. Um, it's gen- generally believed that there, there was some previous time where, where everything was done by barter and that money was invented to replace this cumbersome system. So you go to great lengths to point out that this is not the case. And why is that important that we get that right? Well, I mean, for one thing, as an anthropologist, this is almost like a professional pet peeve we have, that there's this story that everyone seems to believe. Once upon a time, there were these villagers, and everybody used to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 20 chickens for that cow, you know. And that wasn't always convenient, because maybe the guy doesn't want chickens, you don't have anything else he wants, and you end up having to invent money. Um, Everybody learns this. Everybody just assumes that it's true. Uh, Anthropologists have been looking for at least 150 years for some place anywhere in the world where that's the normal mode of economic transaction. It doesn't exist. There are no barter societies. So just pointing that out is almost a professional responsibility. But I think much more important is why we tell that story. The story goes back to Adam Smith. And if you think about it, it's kind of on... It's kind of absurd because you're assuming that here's a bunch of people, they all live in a little village somewhere, yet they will only interact with each other on what an economist would call the spot trade. You know, I'll give you something, you give me something, we both walk away. Well, you know, the guy's your neighbor. If he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't want your chickens, you're going to have something else he wants eventually. So what that scenario would really produce would be a credit system which is kind of what you do see in a lot of places. So what actually happens is you say, hey, nice cow, and the guy says, oh, take the cow, it's on me, you know, don't even think about giving me anything back. But in fact, you know, you kind of owe him one. <laughs> and he might show up and say, well, you know, nice shoes. Or he might show up and say, you know, my son is in love with your daughter. Uh, and I think that's where it opens up and goes you can kind of see what the economist's problem is. Because when you're starting with a credit system, there's no distinction between economic transactions and personal relations, social relations, marriage, all these other, um, all these other things get entangled in there. Um, what the economist wanted to do is imagine a world where credit didn't exist, where everybody simply went around swapping things. You know, it never really happened as a way of saying that, you know, what we're talking about is pure science because it's just about objects, it's objective, it's material, um, so that it can sort of pose a scientist, say that that's what human relations are like, and then by this very clever move, they turn around and say, actually, all relations, even if they are interpersonal relations like marriage, really people are just calculating like they would with stuff. So it's a way of making a kind of intellectual claim and telling people what the world is, is about by making up a fairy tale. And so uh, putting economics into this class of like a really pure sort of hard science where everything can be quantified in a certain way when when that's really not what it is. Exactly, because, you know, once you say, well, it's just about the things, you're calculating things, you can start setting up equations. Because once you get into personal relations, it's not something that you could even claim could ever be reduced to a mathematical formula. And through most of human history, you know, everything was mixed up. You would take into consideration how much you want the stuff. You take into consideration how much you like the guy, how much you want to cut him a break, what his situation is, or maybe how much you hate him, for that matter. Uh, you couldn't divorce society and economics. In fact, the very idea of the economy as a sort of autonomous domain, you know, nowadays all politics is about the economy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, 200 years ago even, Certainly 300 years ago, there was no such thing as the economy. People didn't think there was, the concept didn't exist. Wow, yeah. And so you talk about uh, 
credit that there there was always this this uh, system of uh, some sort of system of credit in place, and this goes back to uh, the Babylonians, oh, you know, Sumer, yeah. and uh, we think of you know like we are in a credit system now that it's relatively new, and that uh, money is just kind of this sort of in between phase. Is that not right? In a way, yeah. I mean, money is in physical money. Um, the way I like to put it, and we think we've moved into this brave new world of virtual money, you know, over the last 20, 30 years when everybody gets credit cards and transactions are electronic. It's true, the technology's new, but the thing itself is not new at all. The irony is that credit money is the original form of money. If you go back to ancient Mesopotamia, they had expense accounts, they had uh, bar tabs, they had um, compounded interest rates. 2,000 years before the invention of cash. That was the original form of money. So they had these elaborate credit systems. You know, occasionally for big transactions, people would actually pull out lumps of silver and wave them out. But that wasn't the main thing. It wasn't systematized into a currency. Um, money was basically a unit of account by which you carry out credit operations. Now, then around 600 BC, people invent coins. And this happens almost simultaneously in Greece, in India, and in um, China. Uh, for about a thousand years, you have these large empires which are using cash, and um, people start thinking gold, silver actually are money. Middle Ages, it all shifts back again. People go back to credit systems. So you have another thousand years where people are, you know, for example, in Europe, they're actually calculating everything first by Roman money and then by Carolingian money that doesn't physically exist. Um, they're using denominations. I mean, the actual coins that are floating around are, using, are based on a totally different system. But all of Europe shares this method of accounting um, by which they can calculate credit. Uh, and that's when you get the invention of checks in the Middle East. You get the invention of paper money in China. People basically go back to credit. Um, starting maybe around 1450, but picking up radically the discovery of the Americas and all of that gold and silver pouring in from Peru and Mexico, you know, you go back to a period of, of bullion money, and, and that's the period we're going, kind of coming out of now. You know, one can be somewhat arbitrary and say 1971 is the cutoff date, because that's the date that Richard Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, formally detaching our currency system from any relation to precious metals. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with David Graeber, and we're talking about his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. And so you, you met, mentioned, David, the uh, uh, colonial uh, period in the uh, conquest of uh, the New World, and in the book you specifically uh, talk about the Spanish conquest of, of Mexico. And, and, and just uh, you put the, these absolutely horrific crimes into like this context could could you talk about that of why mm. things played out the way they did that was one of the most fascinating things i discovered actually because i don't think you know we'd all kind of worried, wondered about the conquistadors the conquistadors have gone down in history as these figures for just inexplicable greed now here are these people they go they conquer kingdoms they carry off the greatest acts of theft in world history whole treasuries fall into their hands, you know, four or five years later, they're at it again. They're never satisfied, and they have to keep on conquering. You know, what's wrong with these people? So it becomes a sort of model for something wrong in human nature. But it turns out, if you look at what was going on, all these guys were deeply in debt. They didn't actually make off like bandits at all, or if they did, it was only rather temporarily. Uh, and you know, I think it helps to explain something of, of the just 
almost inexplicable brutality. Because there's all these descriptions of conquistadors you know, going off, assigned to um, you know, places like Oaxaca, where there were mines that just like marching off the entire population to die in the mines, or at the point where the roads leading to the mines, were, you couldn't walk on them without walking over corpses, and there's thousands of vultures everywhere eating the bodies of the dead. People were dropping like flies everywhere. And like, How could anyone you know, do this to, to their fellow human beings? Um, well, if you start poking through the original sources, what you find out is the whole thing was based on a scam. Cortez was deeply in debt. He gets this idea to, like, get a bunch of other people to come along with him. But they charge them for the weapons. They charge them for the for medical care. They, they set up this whole system whereby, even though they're supposed to get a share of the gold, by the time the gold actually comes through, they subtract everything they're supposed to owe them for supplies, and uh, it turns out that actually you owe us money. So the guys mm. who conquered the Aztec Empire, the ones who survived, you know, end up in debt. And, of course, they're outraged, and they're all about to rebel. Uh, so Cortez says, okay, okay, look, I'm not going to forgive the debts, but I'll give you a moratorium, and let's get these guys out of the way. They're complaining too much. And they send them off to the mines somewhere and say, here, you have control over Oaxaca. So, of course, they just, like, turn into these vindictive monsters, but it's partly because they're just so angry and ashamed. It's a comment on the sort of psychology that debt turns us into monsters because it puts us in a situation where we almost have to reduce everything around us to potential cash value and nothing else. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so you've, you've seen the behavior of others and you sort of emulate that and you kind of are, it, you're in such a dire situation as like you have a debt you will never get out of and, and it's, uh, you're looking for some escape and you, that leads you to desperation. And the it, desperation and then combined with that, the general anger and who can you take it out on these poor Indians. Yeah, yeah, really, really <laughs> horrific. So, you know, many of us are, are aware, aware, obviously, of, you know, debt crises of, of recent decades. But, you know, as we just talked about here, this has, you know, been going on for some time, thousands of years, actually. Uh, you talk about how uh, some of these played out in, in even uh, in previous centuries, even before that, and how... Uh, peasant revolts were almost always about debt. Could you go into that a little bit? That, that really surprised me, because I think Moses Finley liked to point this out. He was a great economic uh, historian and classicist, that there's basically one revolutionary program in the entire ancient world, from the you know, time of Homer, when we first have records, to the very end, you know, when people rise up, there's one demand, cancel the debts. After that, redistribute the land. But that's pretty much it. Um, that's the revolutionary program. Well, if you look around the world, it's not just the classical world. It's, it's surprisingly common just about everywhere. You know, in India, you find debt rebellions. You don't find rebellions nearly as much about you know, caste inequality. You don't see slaves rising up that much. I mean, it happens every now and then. But surprisingly little compared to debt. You know, so slaves, serfs, oppressed, untouchables don't rise up nearly as much. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, one reason is there's a lot more uh, debtors. I mean, it's probably true that most people who ever lived were told at some point in their lives that they owed something to the people on top, that they were debtors, which is interesting to reflect on. But it's also because there's something really that, that, that creates indignation. I mean, in a way similar, perhaps, to the conquistadors, because when you're saying someone's a debtor, it's not the same as saying you are inferior. You know, if, if you have a caste system, well, you know, 
it's not nice to be told you're inferior, but you can handle it. You know you're, you know the situation. Um, you can work within it. When there's debt, it's more like you should be my equal, but you did something terribly wrong. So there's an element of guilt and shame that it's very hard to respond to except by saying, now, wait a minute, who owes what to who here? And that's why, on the one hand, debt seems to be the most effective way of taking a situation of just violent inequality. If you conquer someone, one of the easiest things to do is to sort of turn the moral relationship around is to say, well, look, um, I could have taken your lives, but I didn't, so you owe me your life, and mm. therefore, you know, you, you can compensate me by paying me this, name some sum they can't possibly pay, and say, oh, I'll, I'll be a nice guy and let you off the hook for the first six months, but after that, you better pay. You know, so, so suddenly you're the nice guy, and they're running around feeling ashamed of themselves. Um, so it's very effective in sort of turning around the morality of the situation. However, when it does explode, it explodes big time. And that's what history seems to show. Yeah, so this is uh, the other thing you get into that you just touched on here is this coupling of debt with uh, morality and that um, we're, uh, especially in America, this is a big thing, and this whole mm -hmm. thing of uh, that if you are a debtor, uh, it's you are a, a bad person in some way. And Failure, that, yes. Yeah, and so you, the point, you, uh, the sort of... Uh, story you just gave us and you you see that it's still today that when say people owe on credit cards or something they're not paying their bills and it gets sent to a bill sure. collector it's hard for me to make out what you're saying Again? Uh, uh, we, uh, we have the situation okay, today better. with uh, bill collectors and mm -hmm. uh, somebody's not paying their bills and they call them and they berate them and tell them they're a terrible person because they're not paying their bills so th this is uh, something old uh, that is uh, now being used in modern times yeah, one of those interesting things, someone explained to me that those guys who can't show up on late night TV and say, I can get you out of debt, often they can. You know how they do it? They just go to court and they say, all right, like we haven't fulfilled part of our contract because we haven't paid the debt, but you haven't fulfilled part of your contract because, I don't know, you didn't send me the alert in time. Um, because a debt is just a contractual relation legally. The, your responsibility to pay them a certain amount of money has no greater standing than their responsibility to alert you on time what you owe, right? But nobody ever thinks about it that way. They think that, like, if you don't pay a debt, that's somehow terrible moral fault, which just goes beyond all other moral faults. And that's one of the things that really caused me to write the book. Why is that? What is that strange power that debt has? I mean, periodically it does blow up in people's faces, but when it doesn't, it has this ability to justify things that no one would ever think were justified under any other circumstance. I start the book with a story with talking to this sort of do-gooder lawyer and uh, about campaigns against the IMF and third world debt crisis. And, you know, I'm describing these terrible things, people's, you know, epidemics, babies dying because they can't afford to keep up medical services anymore. Um, and, you know, because they have to pay these debts to bankers in Switzerland who, you know, really don't need the money anyway. Um, and, you know, she would, but at the end of it, she was like, well, that's terrible, but, you know, you're not, you couldn't be saying that they shouldn't pay their debts. I mean, they borrowed the money, right? I mean, that's only right. I mean, like, what under other circumstance would someone like that possibly come up with an apology for killing babies? Yet somehow debt can bring that out in people. 
Yeah, it, it's uh, it's flabbergasting. I mean, it's really, and, and again, this book has been such an eye-opener for me, and uh, it just uh, kind of had an inkling of some of this, of that debt was, we were looking at it wrong, but not really sure why. And um, you uh, mentioned the term uh, clean slate. We all know that term. Doesn't this uh, go back to these uh, situations of debtor revolts? Is, is that the origin exactly. of that term? Yeah. It was a way of heading them off originally. Um, in ancient Mesopotamia, when they first invent interest-bearing debt, it's really invented for commercial affairs. Temples are producing all of these wares, and they need to ex- send them off to the hills to get metal and wood and various other things they can't produce themselves in Mesopotamia. Um, so they make interest-bearing loans to merchants, because I guess they don't trust them to accurately report their profits. Um, now, once it exists, Suddenly, you get consumer loans, which through much of history is also known as usury, um, and we discovered the debt trap. It's a very common phenomenon, like for most of human history, the great sort of social evil, the thing, the worst thing that could happen, which would start tearing society apart, was precisely that the rich would effectively enslave the poor by means of debt. You know, in a poor year, they'd lend money, the farmer would get into a debt trap, uh, couldn't pay it back, would have to start selling off their fields, their vineyards, their flocks, eventually putting their children and wives and themselves into um, debt peonage or sometimes selling them off absolutely as slaves. Um, now, when this happened, often people would rebel, but more often they'd run away if they had any option. So you'd have this phenomenon where people would join nomadic bands in the desert. Uh, sometimes they would come sweeping back into the cities again, but Kings became very nervous. Um, There was depopulation. There was unrest. So they would simply say, okay, new king would declare all debts canceled. A clean slate, which, you know, comes from, it was actually called washing the tablets at the time because they used clay. But clean slate's the same thing, wiping off the debt records on on the little slates they used to keep keep records. Um, And they would say, all right, maybe sometimes commercial debts would say, but consumer debts would all be wiped out, and everybody would get to go home. One fact I always like to point out is that the first word we actually know, first recorded word for freedom in any human language, is a Sumerian word, amargi, uh, which is actually a term for debt freedom. And it literally means return to mother, because all the people who'd been taken away as debt peons got to go home. Wow, yeah, and you, uh, at the beginning of the show here, we, uh, we played a song called Jubilee, and you go into the history of that word, I mean, we, we find that word in the, the Bible and the Old Testament, and, uh, people usually understand this to mean, well, different things, but something to do with freedom, but you, you point out that it really has to do with debt freedom, or, am I understanding? Yeah, it was a system of, basically what they did was they took that Mesopotamian idea, the periodic debt cancellation, probably an idea they picked up in the, during the Babylonian captivity, because you know, Hammurabi too did that uh, clean slates, um, and adopted it systematically in ancient Judea, so that every seven years or every forty-nine years depends. Different people have different interpretations. The text seem to say different things. Um, there would be debt cancellations, so they just have an automatic clean slate, and that lasted for about six hundred years, by some estimates. Yeah, so the uh, all of the three major uh, Western monotheistic religions have real concerns about uh, usury 
in, yeah. uh, in <laughs> we've lost that concern. We had usury, anti-usury laws here in the United States, which I think some are still in the books, but I don't know to what degree well, any of this. state by state. We got rid of them nationally by a sort of a subterfuge. I think in 1980, Congress passed a law saying that rather than having to obey the state law, you know, rather than banks or other institutions having to obey the laws of the state they were operating in, they could obey the laws of the state that they were based in. Whereupon, I believe South Dakota said, okay, well, we have no usury laws. So all financial institutions relocated there. Yeah, and, and That's how Sioux Falls became this great financial center. And, and you, I, I think you point out in the book also that um, some of these religions uh, flourished Precisely, I think Islam in particular, because of their stance against usury, that was something that helped them to flourish? Absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things about Islam is that it took about 200 years after the Arab army swept out over the Middle East before most people converted to the new religion. And it wasn't the government. I mean, they did, people really were very suspicious of the government under the caliphate and under medieval Islam. What caused people to convert were these religious courts. And people, I mean, insofar as one can reconstruct the history, it's not entirely clear what happened. It seems that effectively there is a kind of a class switch where merchants change sides. During most of Middle Eastern history, as I was saying, um, it was administrators and merchants who were the lenders. Um, people would fall into arrears. They'd start reappropriating everything. So there was this incredible intense popular hatred of both the administrative and the mercantile classes. And essentially the merchants decided, oh, to hell with it. We're going to become the good guys. Um, and what... It, Sharia did, this is the reason it was so popular, the Islamic law, was it essentially made all of that stuff illegal. It made lending money at interest illegal. It also made debt peonage illegal. It made uh, enslaving fellow Muslims or Christians or Jews, for that matter, illegal. Um, so as a result, rather than there being an alignment between well, between merchants and administrators, the merchants joined the side of sort of ordinary people and became the pillars of the community um, so that, you know, the mosque and the sukh or the bazaar, you know, the, the marketplace became sort of centers of popular life. And it was all supposed to operate completely independently from the state. This created this very interesting phenomenon where sort of free market populism, as we know it today, and, you know, as promoted first and most dramatically perhaps by Adam Smith in England, actually derives more than anything else from medieval Islam. They had this idea the market should operate apart from the state. Um, Mohammed was supposed to have said that it's impious to set prices, for governments to set prices, because under free market conditions, prices are set by God. Um, it turns out that most of Adam Smith's best lines were actually called from sources from medieval Persia. Another thing that I had no idea of before I started researching this book, and I was quite startled to learn, you know, the pin factory actually comes from Al-Ghazali's needle factory in 1180. Um, even his lo some of his best lines, like, you never saw two dogs exchanging a bone, comes from Tusi. Uh, mm -hmm. So this, they came up with this free market ideology. But... And it was all made possible by the fact they had these very elaborate credit systems, which were based on honor and trust and operated outside the state. However, there's one key difference between these medieval Islamic, this medieval Islamic version of free market populism 
and the one that comes to Europe later, which is that they didn't assume that the basis of a market economy was competition. They thought you know, competition plays a role. But ultimately, the market is a form of mutual aid. So in this weird way, you know, the communistic principle of from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs and the market idea of supply and demand kind of fused together. You know? um, it's all ultimately a way of division of labor, mutual aid. Uh, and, and it kind of makes sense because if you don't have governments enforcing contracts, if you don't have anybody to come and arrest you, um, well, trust plays a much bigger role. And you as I like to put it, you can't have cutthroat competition when there's nobody stopping you from actually cutting each other's throats. So it was a whole different idea of what a market is. Then this gets adopted in Europe. But the curious thing about Europe is Europe is one of those places where war and trade are considered kind of versions of almost versions of the same thing. I always contrast the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean. Under the height of the Islamic Caliphate, you know, the Indian Ocean wasn't actually under the control of this caliphate, but there was this agreement that princes can fight on land, you can have wars, you can be violent, that's fine, but you don't fight on the water. Well, that's a place mm-hmm. of peace and trade. Now contrast that with the Mediterranean where a Venetian galley, you know, whether those guys were pirates, whether they were crusaders, or whether they were merchants completely depended on the balance of forces of the moment. Merchants and traders were kind of the same thing. I mean, merchants and, and warriors were often quite, quite the same thing. So when those guys adopt this free market notion, it's assumed that it's all a competitive game. But, of course, you can't sustain that unless you really have a state behind it as a means of enforcement. Yeah, right, right. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here, speaking with David Graeber, and we're discussing his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Um, yeah, are you still there, David? I'm here, yes. Okay, I guess we're having a little bit of connection problem, but if it gets bad enough, let me know, and we'll see if we can uh, get another uh, line going. But, again, the book is Debt, The First 5,000 Years. David Graber is our guest today. Uh, fascinating, wonderful book. Um, anyway, uh, so we have a serious problem brewing with uh, student loan debt. What are your Indeed. thoughts on that? Oh, I think that's a classic example of something that could a reason why we could really do of a jubilee right now. Um, I mean, I'm speaking as someone who actually paid off my entire student loan debt, um, and people often say, well, you can't forgive student loan debt. I mean, that would be unfair to people who paid it off, you know. Uh, that logic, I think, is one of the most morally perverse types of logic I've ever heard. You know, speaking as someone who worked hard to pay back my student loan debt, I can say, as far as I'm concerned, that would be the moral equivalent of saying that it's unfair to a mugging victim not to mug everybody else. <laughs> I think that, you know, that's a perfect example of something that could easily be wiped out as a clean slate to the great economic advantage of everybody in the country. Not to mention moral advantage. Uh, yeah. Free yeah. people to pursue more meaningful lives. Right. It, it's just really, the, the term crush is used a lot, but it's it's so appropriate that it's this crushing debt. And and we had, you know, the other, you know, just credit cards. You know, 40 years ago, very few people had credit cards. Now it seems everybody's got a few, and many are carrying around a lot of debt that they won't probably ever be able to pay off. And, and it seems that people are using credit cards to maintain a middle-class lifestyle because uh, wages have stagnated. Is, Precisely, yeah. Yeah, what, so what's, what's the answer there? <laughs> well, 
I mean, all right. I think that the more the most convincing explanation of what's happened is that you know, we kind of have two cycles of post-war capitalism. So, like the Midnight Notes people have made this argument, and I find it quite compelling. You know, from 1945 to maybe say 1975, to choose a somewhat arbitrary date, um, you have a situation where. Some people were offered a really good deal, mostly the sort of white working class of the North Atlantic countries. This is a deal like if you guys don't become communists or make trouble too much, we will give you a welfare state, we'll give you education for your kids, we'll give you health care, we'll give except in America. Um, <laughs> you know, there, was, there was an understanding. Now, you could say that more and more people wanted in on the deal, obviously, since it at first only included a rather small proportion of the world's population. So for the next 30 years or so, you know, you see all these movements for inclusion. The civil rights movement is a classic example. Uh, minorities who had been left out of the deal said, now wait a minute, fair is fair. Uh, economic rights and political rights at that point were the same thing. Now, the problem is, it turns out that capitalism doesn't seem to operate in a way where working class people can all get a good deal. Um, that idea that productivity raises in productivity is matched by raises in wages, which is kind of the Keynesian deal, as they sometimes say, you know, it, it hit its limits. Mm -hmm. More and more people wanted in. You have more and more people in the global south, women, of course, feminist movement. Um, suddenly, everybody wanted in, and the system essentially couldn't accommodate that without fundamentally changing. So you, you had a crisis. And that crisis was met with oil shock, you know, remember the 70s oil crisis, the financial crisis, the, there was visions of ecological catastrophe everywhere. Um, now, that crisis was not exactly resolved. It was just postponed by this enormous manipulation of debt. So the New Deal was, okay, you know, you can all have political rights. Everybody can be a democracy now because political rights, you know, have no economic implications. Um, they do not lead to economic rights. Um, and, but everybody gets credit. And you see this huge explosion of credit will solve the world's problems. Everybody should have a house. Everybody should have a mortgage, 401Ks. The world's poor were going to be saved by microcredit. You have this really strange uh, situation where Yunus Khan, the head of the Grameen Bank, wins the Nobel Prize. I mean, he's probably the only usurer in world history who managed to make himself into a hero. Um, now, again, you could say, well, there's a limit to everything, and that's not going to work forever, and it didn't. Um, once you got to the point where everybody was getting credit, well, again, the system couldn't maintain itself. Um, it, no system, especially a credit system, can really offer a good deal to everyone. So suddenly it broke, and that's what we saw in 2008. And what do you have? You're smack-backed in the situation you had in the 70s. You have oil crisis. You have financial crisis. You have visions of ecological catastrophe again. A uh, question is, how are they going to get out of this one? It's not entirely clear. Well, y you mentioned on the student loan debt that, you know, what if we did just decide to uh, erase everybody's debts? Uh, <laughs> now, there are people that, that when you mention that, they sort of go ballistic and say, you yeah. know, you just can't do that, moralizing, like you said earlier, but also that this will have really dire effect on the economy. What, what <laughs> More dire than has already been done by not doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so have you, have you talked to other people about this? What would happen? I mean, is, are there models for this? If, if they just said, okay, you know, we're racing student uh, loans. You know, you know who actually did it in terms of Jubilee? There is one country um, that actually did this. Very few people know because they didn't make a lot of noise about it. 
No. You know who? No. Saudi Arabia. That was their reaction to the Arab Spring. They canceled all debts. Oh. And they also doubled the size of the security forces. But, you know, that, they kind of knew that what was really behind a lot of this popular unrest. Yeah, I mean, people who are have that weight over them and uh, they're suffering with uh, debt they can't get out of, if that's taken away, all of a sudden this person is much happier. person is much happier and a person has a lot more free time and a person has a lot more control over their destiny. I mean, what I always like to point out is, like, you know, remember I was saying about the social evil, you know, the sort of worst-case scenario when someone like Aristotle was imagining social breakdown or even Hammurabi, um, it was that situation. One or two percent of the population end up with all the wealth. Um, everybody else ends up effectively enslaved or they fall so deeply into debt that they're selling themselves into slavery or selling off members of their family. Well, you know, if Aristotle were alive and were here today, I doubt he would make that much of a distinction between selling yourself into slavery or selling yourself to work for someone else and renting yourself to work for someone else. I mean, I think that he would actually conclude that most Americans are slaves, quite possibly. Yeah, well, you do hear people use the term uh, wage-slave. Right, and it's wage-slavery based on debt. I mean, the thing is that debt forces you into situations that you would never be in otherwise. I mean, one of the... I'm based in London. In London, they tried this economic um, educational reform. Um, And the first move, they put out this report, which just assumed that no one pursues an education except as a way of increasing their, you know, future life income, which is the thing that most insulted people in the student movement. They're like, no, actually, we want an education because we want to understand the world. Um, But, you know, that idea that people would wish to understand the world uh, was just not even considered in the way these people write about education. So they assume that people's motives are completely different than they actually are. And um, then what do they do? They say, okay, let's triple tuition and give everybody loans. Well, what's the effect of that? It means you have no choice but to, like, think about your education only in terms of how it's going to affect your later life income. So it becomes a complete self-fulfilling prophecy. First, you come up with this entirely cynical idea of what people are like. They're these calculating machines only interested in money. And then you put them in a situation where they actually have to act like that. That's what that does. There, there's the game. <laughs> there, there it is. Yeah. Uh, so some folks say that instead of bailing out the banks the way the government did in 2008, uh, 2009, that they should have uh, paid off people's debts to the banks. The banks would have gotten money. People would have been relieved of crushing debts and had more money to spend to prime the economy. Uh, but then but then there's, again, this notion that it, it's okay to bail out irresponsible banks, but it would be wrong to cancel working people's debts. I know, it's fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, and how they, I mean, at the time, you know, it seemed quite clear that the overwhelming majority of Americans said, let the banks fail, bail out the, mor- you know, the mortgage holders. But it shows the, a certain lack of democracy that the, overwhel- the opinion of the overwhelming majority of Americans wasn't even considered as an option by the political class. Um, well, there's complete economic capture. I mean, the problem, um, to put it crudely, but I think it's accurate, is that bribery isn't actually illegal in American politics. <laughs> um, so Wall Street has basically bought both parties. Right. So the opinion of most Americans doesn't really matter. And, you know, they could appeal to that old traditional morality of debt, and if they repeat it over and over again for enough years, people will, like, eventually buy into it. But it wasn't their first reaction, and I thought that was very interesting. 
Yeah, again, we're talking to David Graeber and discussing his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Uh, David, how are um, economists uh, reacting to your book? Well, you know, the Wall Street Journal asked me to write something commenting on the S&P. Um, I mean, economists are interesting characters. Um, some of them are quite intellectually alive and you know, willing to listen to alternatives, and some of them just turn their brains off, you know, and then don't have to react at all. Um, and that's the luxury of being the master discipline. You know, in a way, you can do either. You can just ignore people with alternatives, or you can be nice to them because it doesn't really make any difference. Um, your people are going to still be taught that everything began with barter, no matter what the truth is, and no matter how carefully you prove that this isn't the case. Um, I find that some economists, well, the interesting thing is that there's a real division among economists about what money really is. Um, you know, the overwhelming majority go for the commodity theory of money that kind of emerges from the Adam Smith story. Um, now, that version, you know, assumes that money is just an economy which emerges from exchange and later becomes a way of measuring the value of other commodities. Um, the other version, which is sort of developed out of credit theories of money, chartalism, as it's sometimes called, is always considered a kind of weirdo strain within economics. Now, it's funny. It's considered the sort of marginal weirdo strain among everybody except for archaeologists and historians, since pretty much all evidence that we actually have indicates that those guys are right. Um, so there's a version of that, and it's sort of called modern money theory, uh, which is especially you know popular among certain radical Keynesians um, and others of that ilk. And those guys love this because it it rather backs their theory, but. What I'm really arguing in the book is not that one strain is right and one is wrong, although I do think in describing what's happening now, the modern money theory people are providing more accurate um, and less ideologically driven description, um, but rather that history itself has kind of gone back and forth between these theories because money itself keeps changing its emphasis, or whether it's mainly a form of credit or mainly a form of, of currency over time. However, you know, those guys are the people who are describing what's the new system that we are entering into, this new credit system. And I think a lot of the problem, in fact, and this I don't know what economists are going to respond to this, I think they're interested. But again, you know, most of them can just ignore you because they don't really have to listen to dissenting views. Um, a few are quite interested. I mean, the argument that I make is that what happened is we have been entering into a period of credit money, but we've kind of been doing it backwards. And this is my major policy advice, you know, um, insofar as I'm weighing in on policy debates. I even actually wrote this in the Wall Street Journal. They were interested. Um, what I said was, look, in the past, when you have a system of credit money, you invariably see something some sort of system set up to protect debtors. Um, you can have clean slates and jubilees. You can have bans on usury that existed in the Middle Ages, you know, so that instead of charging interest, you have to have profit-sharing plans and things like that. You can have a lot of different things. Uh, however, you need something to make sure the whole system doesn't go crazy, tiny percentage of the population doesn't effectively enslave everybody else, and you have terrible social breakdown, which ultimately isn't good for the economy either, even if that's the only thing you care about. Now, um, what did they do? since 71. Well, actually, they did the exact opposite. They set up giant overarching institutions which were designed to protect creditors. 
That's what the IMF was. You know, mm-hmm. the IMF decided that all international loans had to be paid, no matter how idiotic. You know, so that even if some bank lent money to an obvious gangster, you know, thug who took over a poor country, stole the money, didn't matter. They still had, you know, to extract the money from that guy, not from that guy's Swiss bank account, but from the guy's former victims. You know, it doesn't, if it's a loan, it has to be paid. Um, similarly, the S&P, you have all these other institutions which are basically there to absolutely guarantee that nobody ever defaults, which makes no economic sense at all, incidentally. But, you know, it, it almost became like a religion. You know, you have to pay all debts. Now, the results have been catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a completely inappropriate uh, way to manage a system of credit money, even from the point of view of the people running the system. And that's why we have disasters like 2008. Well, uh, we could go on and on about this, but David, we're just about out of time here. I do want to make sure we give out all the information that we need to. Do you have a a website you want to give out or anything else you want? You can go to the Mobile House website. Um, I think it's mhpbooks.com, and if you want to look at the book there, you can get it straight from the publisher. (coughs) I strongly suggest you go to your local indie bookstore, which I'm sure Irvine has a nice one. Yeah, and I, Melville House, I will say, does put out a, a, a lot of great books, and uh, I'm uh, glad you're with them. It's a good match, and uh, yeah. thanks for doing this book, and uh, really uh, thanks for spending the time with us today. It was a real pleasure. Okay. Thanks you, for having me. Take care. Yes, uh, David Graeber, uh, the first uh, debt, the first 5,000 years, and uh, you are, uh, <laughs> this book will open your eyes and really have you thinking and wanting you to, uh, have you wanting to talk to all of your friends and uh, get uh, out of that rabbit hole of a sort of false, uh, <laughs> sort of contrived reality about what money and debt are all about. So again, debt, the first 5,000 years, David Graeber, and uh, it was a uh, Great having him on the show today. And you want to stay around and listen to some more KUCI because we've got Matt Kaplan coming up in just a few minutes here to uh, present to you Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And I want to remind you once more that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at kuci.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. I also want to thank Heather McCoy for helping out with some engineering today. Thank you so much. And, okay, that concludes Out the Rabbit Hole. And I, Robert Larson, will be talking to you next week here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.